Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. On to Foothills Christian Church. I'm so glad that you are here with us today. Especially want to give a shout out to all of you who've just moved from another state. We're so glad you're here. We just want someone else to tell you that, you know, so that you feel somebody is leaving the welcome mat on, you know, it's Tom Bodette, we'll leave the light on for you. That's probably a bad imitation. Uh, Foothills Christian Church is a different kind of a church. If this is your first time or you're just joining us online, doing church at home, and uh, maybe accepted the invitation of a friend, and that is our goal is to help you grow in your faith so that you know uh, who you are, who God is, how to know God, how to know yourself, uh, what's the point and purpose of your life, how to be married, how to find someone to be married, how to be single, how to be a parent. These types of things all go to the core of who we are as human beings. And our goal is to help you discover that and figure it out. So we're all about Jesus. And we're going to be starting a brand new series today called What Would Jesus Say? We're going to talk about what would he say to society the next week. Boy, this is a landmine. What would he say to our politicians And then finally on Easter, which is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to talk about what he would say to you. So I think it's going to be a lot of excitement. As you notice, the host said Pastor Harv was going to kick us off because he was going to say, what does Jesus have to say to our society? This is an area of expertise for Harv because he does a lot of research and he has a lot of knowledge about our society and everything. But Pastor Harv got really sick. So I'm back up today. I'm, I apologize that you get the second string this morning. <laughs> I was so looking forward to Pastor Har's message on this, so I'm going I'm to have him preach it to me uh, sometime just so I can hear it. Maybe I'll share that with you, because uh, it's always good. Now, uh, as a church, we're all about Jesus because we want you to know him and grow in him. And so we were thinking in this series, you know, what would it be like if Jesus were to show up today and share with our current world what he thinks about what's going on. And that got me to thinking, what in the world would Jesus look like if he showed up today? I mean, if he showed up, what would he look like? Would he be rocking the, the, the toga thing with the long hair, Italian facial features? And he might be kind of modern because he'd have a part right down the middle, you know, that long hair. No side parts for Jesus, all right? But then I got to thinking, <clears throat> can I imagine Jesus in skinny jeans? I just can't do that. I don't know. I just can't, you know. Uh, what, what kind of accent would he have? Would Jesus have an accent like, uh, would it be an American accent or maybe a, a Middle Eastern accent? Or could you imagine Jesus with a Russian accent, you know? I mean, oh, comrade, dos pedanya. I can't imagine that, you know. Now, and what kind of music would he listen to, right? What kind of, think about that. Would Jesus listen to rap music, classical music, or would it be Gregorian chants all day long, you know? Maybe he'd be into Yanni. Who knows? Now, that's pure speculation. I'm just being humorous. The real issue, though, is what in the world does he think about what's going on in our uh, society today? And how would he uh, address that? And I think it's really important because Jesus came into a society that was really pluralistic. It was really divided. 
If you want to really understand what that means, listen to the Salty Pastor because I go in depth on that. It comes out every Tuesday and Thursday at four o'clock, and you can kind of it helps you understand a little bit more in depth. You can listen to it on any platform that hosts podcasts because we post all of them. Spotify. Uh, you can get it on our YouTube channel, uh, Apple's uh, podcast app, so forth. But uh, suffice it to say that Jesus came into a society that was really at odds because he was Jewish, but the Jews at that time were uh, occupied and overseen by the Roman Empire. They were part of the Roman Empire. So they had these, they were very pluralistic and they were very diverse. And there wasn't anything that really unified the, this culture together. And Jesus came into that. And he spoke and he preached and he teached. And it got me to thinking about how back then there was this big division between the Jewish nation and the Romans, and they were constantly fighting with each other. And Jesus was, uh, lived probably between 30 and 35 AD when he did his ministry. And then in 70 AD, so within about 25 years of his death and resurrection, guess what? The Romans came in and totally destroyed Jerusalem, all right, after a three-year siege. And that's when they destroyed the temple. And uh, the emperor at that time uh, told his son Titus, he said, I don't want one stone standing on top of another. So they went in. So just to give you an idea that there was a lot of division going on in that society, that big Roman empire at that time. And that kind of got me to thinking about how there's so much division in our own society today. I mean, you think about it is that uh, it's pretty obvious that, that in America today, we're very divided politically, right? Um, and the politics seem to be getting, you know, more intense and, and more nasty sometimes. Uh, but we're, we're, we're divided politically. Uh, one thing uh, that we are also divided over is economically, you know, and that is, is that what is the economic philosophy of our society supposed to be, right? Is that going to be a philosophy of uh, the biggest discussion right now is between capitalism and a form of uh, socialism or democratic socialism? And what does that look like? <laughs> But that's a big division right now. We have a big division in our society over what is justice, right? Um, uh, do we really want uh, police officers to go out and arrest bad guys, or do we not want them to do that, and we just want bad guys to be treated more humanely? You know, there's a big debate over that right now, and th there seems to be a division over that. Is that good for society or bad? So people are really divided over that. And then people are even divided over more things. Like, here's a really big one, is that, you know, people are really divided over what it means to, to love and to be married. You know, what does it mean to fall in love and be married? What, what does that actually mean? Well, in our society, there's two big divisions. There's a, there's a side over here that says, you know what, relationships are like books. They have a shelf life. They run their course. Then when you're done, you trade it in, you know, you go to the library, you get another one, you go back and forth. And that's just because we're human beings and nothing lasts forever and so forth. And this, this whole thing is, you know, really popular in our society. Then you have another group in our society says, well, no, is that, you know, marriage is supposed to be something sacred and it can be hard and it can be tough, but if you uh, have a covenant and you stick with it, then what's going to happen is you're going to find your soulmate, you know, you're going to, it's going to be a great thing. You're going to have great kids, you know, and grandkids, and this is really good and stable for society. And then this, this group over here says, well, no, we don't like the nuclear family. We want to kind of get rid of that because that's oppressive in nature. And so there's a really big division about that going on. It's a big debate happening in our society right now. You know, it talks about what is love? What, what really is love? And what does it mean to be in love? 
Uh, but really, ultimately, it comes down to two things, and that is we have a division over truth, right? What's true? Now, we're in a postmodern society. They're all deconstructionists, which is a way of thinking. And, and over here, you have this concept that, that truth isn't something that anybody can really know, and there really isn't any objective truth, and there really isn't ultimately any absolute truth. And so your truth is the most important truth, and you should pursue that because in the end, it doesn't really matter what anybody else's truth is. It's what your truth is the most important. And you can kind of see why people feel that way because in some ways, that's a kind of sort of true, you know? It's like, like when I go out to eat, I don't know about you, but I want to eat what I want to eat. I don't want to eat what someone else tells me I should eat, you know, even if what I want to eat is a little bad for me, right? You know, and then that, that tempter, that great Satan called the waiter comes up to you after you're full and says, would you like some dessert? Oh, you tempt me, right? It's all his fault, not mine. Um, but you kind of you get that sense, you know, about you can kind of understand why people feel that way, right? Because they have the sense that, well, man, when anybody makes a, a, an appeal to an absolute truth or an appeal, it's kind of oppressive, right? And it's kind of a power play. And if you've read, ever read uh, uh, Nietzsche or Foucault or any of these postmodern philosophers, Nietzsche wasn't postmodern yet, but he kind of paved the way. Uh, and what happened is you kind of understand that, yeah, I guess in some ways, absolute claims are a little bit of a power play. You know, guess who else was a little skeptical of absolute claims? Jesus, Right? Because when the Pharisees said, well, we're absolutely this, Jesus was like, oh, really? You know, are you sure? And so we kind of we get that. But then you have over here this other side, you know, and that is, is that there is an absolute truth. There is an objective truth. And if we try to pursue and find out what it is, our lives are transformed and changed in ways we can never imagine. And Jesus said this, ultimately, when it comes right down to it, there is an objective reality. And when you understand what that reality is, your life is forever transformed, and that reality is me, and I define what it means to be alive. Because at its core, you know what this debate is all about? What a lot of people don't realize, the biggest division in our society today is over the definition of what it means to be a human being. Now, that sounds pretty deep, kind of strange, and you're thinking, where's my snorkel? Because we're jumping into the deep end of the pool now. But basically, this is what it means, is you have one side is, that, is this, is that, well, there's really not any afterlife, there's no spirit, there's no soul, there's no you that is you because we're just material beings, that's all that exists. Nothing exists beyond this space and time right now. And what that means is that there is no you that is you, you don't have free will, if you think you're in love, you're really not, it's just an illusion, okay? Your choices don't matter because we're predetermined. And if you doubt me on this, you can read, you know, any atheist book right now that talks about it all the time, you know, Bill Maher, Sam Harris, uh, Dennett, uh, Dillahunty, it just goes on and on and on. Because there's nothing beyond just the cold universe. And so there's no meaning, there's no purpose in it. And so whatever we choose to do, there's no such thing as good morals or bad morals, right? It's, you, you do whatever. 
And then you have this other side over here that says, well, you know what it means to be a human being? It means that you're created in the image of God because there is an afterlife. And guess what? The kiss of God is on you. And so your hopes and your dreams and your passions, your desire to, to meet somebody and fall in love or your love and your passion that you have for your children are all things that come as a reflection of the image of God in your life. But there's a problem, and the problem is simply this, is that no matter how hard you try, it gets frustrating and difficult because you mess up, you trip up, you take left turns, right turns, you make bad decisions. Why do you do that if you're created in the image of God and God loves you? Well, that's because there's a little bit of a virus or a cancer in your soul. It's called sin. And until you deal with that, you're never going to be able to walk in and live in this image that God has placed within you that reflects who he is. You'll never fully understand who you are and who you are meant to be. Now, you can see at its core, these are pretty diametrically opposed. And I'll tell you what, if you're in middle school or you're in high school or you're in college, this is the seminal choice of your life. That's right. The most important thing about you is deciding what you believe about this issue. Because if you believe this one, then there are lots of ramifications for that. If you believe this one, there are lots of ramifications for it. And so, choose well, Padawan. Choose well. And that's why I want to help you make a good choice. And one of the best ways to do that is to understand what Jesus would say to our society today. And so let's dig into that and figure it out, okay? We're going to go to Matthew. Now, Matthew is one of the biographies on the life of Jesus. And the first, you know, chunk of Matthew is where he kind of starts his ministry. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he preaches, the, the, there's the longest recorded message of Jesus, and then what happens is he has his apostles are following him now. He hasn't appointed them yet. They're disciples. But what happens is he, then in chapter 9, he starts talking. He goes around to all of these villages and talking about the truth of the kingdom of God. And what he does is he starts teaching to all the cities and healing people. So what he does is he's kind of been setting up, you know, the first probably seven or eight chapters of Matthew is setting up his ministry, and then Matthew now records, bam, he just pops it into drive, puts his foot on the pedal, and mm, just roars off, okay? And so he's traveling around and doing all this, and I want to read to you beginning with verse 35 of chapter 9 that gives a little summation of Jesus and why he was doing it and what he felt, okay? So let's read it and see what he would have to say to that society and to our society as well. Now, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says to his disciples, so he's traveling around, he sees what's going on, has a lot of compassion, and then he says this to his disciples. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So what are the biblical principles right now that you see in that passage of Scripture? 
All right? Jesus goes out to teach and to heal, right? Now, I find this interesting because what happens is Jesus would heal those with diseases. He would give sight to the blind. He would heal the paralytic so the paralytic could get up and walk. He would set the captive free. He would cast out demons, right? So he would do these things in the physical realm. I find it interesting because it seems to me that for every physical healing, there is a corresponding type of spiritual healing. You know, some people uh, are blind to the truth. They just can't see it. But Jesus can heal that, just like he gave sight to the blind. Some people, uh, when they were younger, they get involved in things that uh, put them in bondage. They have personal demons, right? And these demons just control their life. It might be an addiction. It might be an anger issue or an unforgiveness issue. It may be a broken relationship or insecurity or an anxiety rooted in a false sense of who they are, whatever it is. But Jesus would cast those demons out and set those people free. And spiritually, he can break in those bonds and he can cast those demons out of a person's life and let their personal demons uh, they can be set free from them. In the same way, Jesus went around and he healed people by letting the, the paralytic walk and so forth. And what I find interesting is this, is that Jesus taught and he healed. So he preached the gospel, the truth, the reality of who God is and who you are. And then what he did is he would heal people. And so these two things worked in tandem together. And the more he did this, in all these villages, the greater compassion that he had. He looked around people. He said, man, I, I, they are sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they are scrambling and they are running and they are striving and they're seeking. But there's no one to lead them. They're like they're harassed by all of the evils of this world. And then he says this to his disciples. Look, these people are sheep without a shepherd. God wants to shepherd them. They need a better leader, and you need to go out. Let's pray to God that more workers, more people would take this seriously enough to go out and help people find the shepherd of all shepherds, which Jesus ends up saying is me. So the need is great. We need to pray to God that he will send out more people interested in making the world a better place by turning people to Jesus, introducing them to him. So how do we take that from there and translate that into today? Well, I think this is exactly what he would say to our society today, and that is, is that people that are influencing us, people that are leading our society, have an agenda. They have an agenda. Maybe good, maybe bad, but we ought to admit they have an agenda, right? I'll tell you what, Procter & Gamble has an agenda. And their agenda is they want you to use their dog food, cat food, and cleaning products, right? Toyota has an agenda. All of our corporations have an agenda, and they're convincing us that our life would be so much better if we simply adopted what? Their agenda. Our politicians, they have an agenda. Our media has an agenda. Your public high school has an agenda. Your... your uh, uh, Hollywood and media and news outlets, they have an agenda. Now, I'm not trying to say whether their agenda is good or bad. I'm just simply saying is that we need to understand they have an agenda. 
When you go to university, your professors and your university has an agenda for you. So society has an agenda, and all the institutions and all the um, uh, uh, social prophets and influencers and all of these different groups have an agenda for your life. The question is this, is their agenda helping or hurting you? Is it making your life better or is it harassing you? Jesus looked at the world there and I think he would show up today and go, man, people in America are so harassed. They don't have peace. They're constantly peppered with all of these things they're told they have to have, pursue this, and this is going to happen, so many messages. He goes, you guys are like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus would say, you know what? You need a better leader. Because no matter whether their agenda is good or bad, it doesn't matter whether the politician's agenda is good or bad. It doesn't matter whether the university's agenda is good or bad. It doesn't matter if the news outlets or Hollywood or Instagram or Facebook or anybody else, their agenda is good or bad. It doesn't matter because in the end, their agenda can never, ever heal your soul. Just can't do it. Jesus said, you need a leader that has the power to heal your soul, to fill your soul, to transform your soul, because that is the wellspring of life. Now, according to Jesus, he says the best way, the best way for you to find this leader is to discover him. And as a matter of fact, it's such a big deal, it's so important, Jesus would say, hey, everybody who already knows me, I need you to get fired up about introducing me to other people. You, you don't need to, uh, you don't need to like buy a sandwich board. You know those sandwich boards, the big signs that you could wear like a, like a tent and you can walk up and down the street, you know, that says the end is near, you know, and then on the backside when you walk by them, it says the end is left, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> One thing about foothills is most of my jokes are really bad and people don't get them. So I really appreciate and thank you for the affirmation for those of you who do laugh at my jokes. And it just kind of, kind of helps me keep my sense of who I am up and going strong. When we introduce people to Jesus, we're not introducing them to a religion. What we're introducing them is to a person, the resurrected Christ. And when we do that, what happens is we are the worker that is answering the call of God to go out. So I think today what he would say to us as his followers, he would say, are you praying to God? Jesus would say this to me and to you. Are you praying to God? Are you praying to God that more people will go out and share me? in order that people can find a better leader because the world cannot lead them. The world will only harass them. He says, you want to be a part of the solution? Then pray to God to be sent out. That is the best way to change the world. So what's really interesting is I think that's what he would say right now. And then if you turn the page and you go to chapter 10, you know what he does? Right after he says, let's pray to send out workers, look at chapter 10. Jesus sends out the 12. 
So right after this, he sends his, his apostles out to go do ministry. He gives them instructions. He tells them what to do, what to expect, how to travel from town to town to town. They go out, they do all this, they come back, they give a big report. And so chapter 11 then of the book of Matthew is Jesus is kind of debriefing with his disciples, but he's also answering a question from the, uh, his cousin, which was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, if you don't remember him, he went before Jesus out to Jerusalem and he said, look everyone, the Messiah is coming. We better repent and turn to God and get ready for the Messiah, ready for the Messiah. And then when Jesus shows up, he goes, look, the Lamb of God. He baptizes Jesus and the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. He hears the voice of God. But as time went on and as Jesus started his ministry, things got pretty bad for John. Uh, eventually he was arrested and then beheaded. And John has an issue, and that is he starts to doubt that Jesus is the one. And so at the beginning of chapter 11, he sends his disciples to go to Jesus and say, John wants to know if you're really him. Can we really believe that? And then Jesus in chapter 11 answers. And he says basically, yeah, I am. Now, I don't have time to go into all of them, but I want to start towards the end of the chapter to give you an idea of what else Jesus would say to our society, okay? Look at what he says in verse 20, all right? So in verse 1 up through verse 19 is all about his answer to John. And then 20, he then says this. He, he kind of changes his tune a little bit, but he's still kind of answering, I am the one, and this is what he says. Now, Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not turn to him. They did not repent. And listen to what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, and these were two cities in the Old Testament that were wiped out by God, he says, they would have been repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, do you remember the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities because of, of overt perversion were wiped out by God long, long, thousands of years before this. He says, if Sodom, and including in, that, in Gomorrah, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Wow. How many of you heard that Jesus loves you? How many of you heard that? How many of you heard that Jesus forgives your sins? How many of you heard that? How many of you heard that it says that God has a wonderful plan for your life? How many times have you heard Jesus say, woe unto you? And we don't hear that very often, do we? But that's Jesus. And what's he saying? He's saying something really important here, and he's talking about the power of unbelief. He's saying, I want you to understand the power of unbelief. He says, look, these cities I will denounce because many of my miracles happened in those cities, and they still chose not to believe. You see, the power of unbelief is not a lack of evidence. A lot of times I have people say to me, well, if Jesus would just show up, I would believe. Oh, really? He showed up to those cities, and they didn't believe. If Jesus would just perform a miracle in, in my life, if I could just see that, 
Wow, I would believe. Oh, really? Because he did miracles in those cities and they didn't believe. So we have a history of people not believing. Why is that? Because unbelief is very powerful. Unbelief is not just a lack of something. It is the presence of something else. And the question is, what is that something else? What is it that causes us not to believe or our people in our society not to believe? Well, what causes it is that unbelief overwhelms the evidence because evidence is not the reason for unbelief. There's a deeper reason, and here it is. I listen to debates a lot uh, between people who are theists and philosophers and those who are atheistic philosophers. Uh, sometimes I'll listen to modernist philosophers debating postmodern philosophers, and here's how debates work. Debates uh, at universities and so forth, they kind of work this way. Is you have to have a question that you agree on, and then one person is for it, and one person tries to disprove it. And so they debate. And I listened probably back in the 80s and 90s. There was a guy who was a theist. He traveled through northeastern universities in America and a, and a lot of Canada. And there was an atheist guy who would always counter-debate him. And they became friends, and they go to universities. And the thing about it is that as they developed a friendship, because they traveled a lot together and did these debates, is they, they were in, uh, after dinner, they had had a nice dinner together, and they were riding up the elevator, going back to their rooms. And the theist said to the atheist, he says, you know, look, we've been doing these debates, and the way a debate works is after the debate, the audience votes who wins, right? And he said to the guy, he goes, look, on this series of debates, I, um, I've been winning by 90, 95% every single night. They're always voting that I win. And he says, yeah, you've been doing a really good job. And, you know, this is a tough way to argue my point, blah, blah, blah. And so the theist said this. He goes, look, because the evidence is so overwhelming, would you at least consider that you might be wrong? And the atheist looked at him without batting an eye and says, no, absolutely not. He goes, why not? He goes, because if there is a God, then I'm not in charge of my life. I'm accountable for what I do. And I choose not to live that way. And the doors opened, and he walked out. See, there's the reason under the reason. See, the reason up here, well, there's not enough evidence. There's not enough this. But there's a reason why you reject the evidence. And you know what that reason is? Because in the end, you don't want somebody else being the Lord or King of your life. You, you've all witnessed this if you have kids or grandkids, right? Uh, your six-year-old, you plan the perfect birthday party for him, right? It's, oh, your six-year birthday party's coming up. It's super special. What do you want to do? Oh, I want Star Wars, and I want to have, you know, uh, uh, a lightsaber fight, and I want to have the little, you know, masks and stuff, and I want to make, you know, funny gummy worms, and we want this, we want that. And so you, as mom and dad, you guys go all out, because this is your firstborn, right? And um, you're thinking... <laughs> You know, yeah, the fourth or fifth one is like, uh, your birthday's coming up. Do you want a Popsicle or a Twinkie? <laughs> you know, but this is your first part, so you're really into it, right? And you go in there, you're planning, you're making all these plans, you know, and they say, who do you want to come? And they, they work on their, they invite all their friends, they invite all their friends, right? And then their friends show up, and 
And they get there at the party, and about halfway through, your wonderful little six-year-old does what? Gets so mad, they storm into their room and slam the door. And you're like, what's going on? Has this ever happened to any of you? Yeah, I'm sure it has. And so you go in there. Mom goes in there and sits down and goes, what's going on? Well, I'm not going to, Johnny won't play lightsabers the way I want. And I wanted to have cake first, and I want to eat ice cream then. I want to do this, and I want to do that, and I want to do this. This is not right. It's my party, and I want my party to come away. You're like, oh, come out. You know, never, nothing ever, you know, life's not supposed to be fair. Come on, come have a good time. Let's just celebrate. That's how mom does it. Dad walks in and goes, if you don't get out there, I've spent so much money on this party and have a good time. We're going to have a chat. Sometimes it's the other way around, but generally, I'm using stereotypes, it works that way. And uh, you're thinking to yourself, how in the world can a party for a six-year-old turn into a tragedy for that six-year-old? You know why? Because they're not in charge. People won't do exactly what they want the way they want to do it. And we look at that and we laugh, right? We think it's funny. That's exactly what Jesus just said. Woe to you, Corzin. Way to you, Capernaum. Woe to you, Capernaum. Woe to you, Bethsaida, because I did everything you asked and you still refuse to believe. Because the reason under the reason is this. It's not about evidence. It's not about miracles. It's not about truth. It's all about your own pride and your arrogance. And Jesus would look at our society today and he'd say, the reason you're lost, the reason you're broken, the reason why your country is divided is because there's a whole boatload of people who refuse to believe because they're filled with pride and arrogance. And I can't fix that. Because it's your choice. This is Milton's Paradise, you know, the great epic poem that you were forced to read in, in uh, your literature 101 class at university. Yeah, one line in it. He writes from Satan, it is better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. A lot of rednecks put that uh, on their trucks as a bumper sticker, right? I'd rather party in hell with all my friends than hang out in heaven with all them angels, right? I'm sure there's at least four country songs about that. <laughs> so the bottom line is, is that you see why is that's, Jesus would say that, and his response would be, he would call it out, and he'd say, woe unto you. Woe unto you, because the power of your unbelief will keep you trapped forever. Which leads us then to the last thing. What does he say? If you go to the end of chapter 11, I'm sorry, not the end of chapter 11, but um, he goes right there in verse 25, yeah, to to the very end of chapter 11. So he then says this, right after he says, woe to you guys, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and you've revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Isn't that an interesting thing he says there? And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So what he's saying here is he goes, look, a lot of times people don't get this figured out until it's too late. But thank you to revealing them to people who think sometimes, not childish, but childlike. They have enough humility to say, maybe there's something more than just my own self. And they see that, and he goes, verse 28, and he goes, when people figure that out, listen to this, he goes, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. 
You're tired of the way life treats you. You're tired of the way what society does to you, to your relationships and to your kids. You're tired of what culture is constantly trying to tempt you with. You're just worn out and weary. Your soul is thirsty. You feel empty at times. You want something more in your life. You want meaning and purpose, significance. Jesus says, come to me when you're weary and burdened, and I will stress the living tar out of you with more religious rules than you could ever imagine, and you're going to love me for it. Is that what it says? No, no. Not at all. What does it say? Come to me and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whatever your soul is hungry for, whatever your soul thirsts for, whatever you truly desperately need in this life can be found in Christ, in Christ alone. For when you meet Jesus, when you know Jesus, you know God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. For when we meet Jesus, we discover what we truly desire, what we truly want, and our souls find freedom and peace. So what would Jesus say to our society today? He would say there is only one way to know God, and that is through me, in me, and about me. That's what it's all about. Many years ago, uh, I knew a man, and uh, he was married for a long time, had three kids, two in college and one high school. And he and his wife uh, were kind of going, you know, they, they'd launched a couple, the other one was getting, you know, driving and stuff. They're thinking our lives are kind of boring, and he's a very successful guy, uh, 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 very wealthy, and I didn't know him. And what happened is he and his wife decided that to kind of, you know, a new chapter in life and stuff, what they were going to do for the next thing. They decided to try the swinging lifestyle. So they went to these clubs that did that, and they started doing this. Long story short, it just totally blew apart their family. Messed up their kids, destroyed their marriage, just a huge big mess. And it was during all of this time of really emotional pain that I met him. And so we started talking, and, and I remember one of our first conversations were about this, and that is, is that, yeah, okay, this is what we started doing, and I know what you're going to tell me, that, you know, I'm just immoral and bad person, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I wasn't going to say that. And he goes, well, what are you going to say? I was going to say, it seems to me that every choice you made is that you're seeking for something, and what you choose never satisfies. And so that intrigued him, and so we started having conversations, and Every few weeks or a month, you know, we would kind of either talk on the phone or he'd come by and we'd chat. And over time, I just started to explain to him that every decision he's ever made in his life, everything that he's ever pursued in his life, his, 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 his drivenness to achieve, his drivenness towards success, his drivenness towards excitement, and his, and his attempt to make himself feel alive and to validate and affirm his existence— and I said, the problem is, is in this world, you're never going to find it. You're never going to discover it. It's never going to happen. I said, the only way you can fill the thirst of your soul is to meet God. 
and the world is a really poor God. And I remember standing out in the parking lot after these conversations, and I said to him, I said, do you finally understand what Jesus is all about? And he goes, yes, I understand. And then I said to him, I said, are you ready to make a decision now? Because now once you know who Jesus is and you know what he did, then you can't be on the fence anymore. No choice is a choice. So you're either going to choose, it's time for me to surrender and say, God, fix this mess, or I'm going to keep trying myself. Right? I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, you know, I know, I understand it. But I just can't. Don't be that guy. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.